Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Well, today we get to talk about one of Seattle's best loves institutions. Been around for what seems like forever, but in a beautiful new location the last couple of years. I'm talking about the Museum of History and Industry. Our guest today is Leonard Garfield. He's the executive director of the museum, better known as Mohai to most people. Um... Yeah, it's been around one form, one name or another for, it's like a hundred years. Well, Leonard, welcome. Thanks for coming today. Well, thanks, Gary. And actually, it's been over a hundred years. We're a hundred plus, but as you say, we're in a brand new home uh, in Lake Union Park. It's in South Lake Union, in the Seattle neighborhood. And we've been there about five years now, and we are just loving it. Yeah, five years. So for a long time, I can remember, this is how old a Seattleite I am, uh, I think it was elementary or junior high, you know, you get on the bus, you say, we're going to the Museum of History and Industry, and then you weave and weaved around, and I said, what the heck are we? We're under all these trees. It was like in the Arboretum near the UW campus, right? It was kind of a hidden treasure, and with emphasis on the word hidden. Well, (laughs) right now we are front and center. I love it. We're that big, beautiful white building at the south end of Lake Union. You can't miss us. But a lot of people have not yet discovered us, so uh, we're we're open for business every single day of the year. So we welcome people to come down. It's just filled with amazing things. It is a beautiful location, and you're right. It's right there. That part of Seattle is perfect for an institution. I said it before, like the Mohai, because so many, it's such a vibrant part of Seattle, especially the last, I don't know, 15 years, you know. Um, Amazon's down there, and Paul Allen bought up a lot of land, and all of his uh, industry things were going down there. So it's beautiful. I guess it's, you know, its actual address is like Valley Street and Terry Avenue, but you're right. It's the park there, and and you're, it used to be, here's another old-time Seattle thing, it used to be the Armory or something. Isn't that well, what it was called? It, well, indeed. It was a historic Naval Reserve Armory. So this was a building built in the 1930s, right at the outbreak of World War II, and for generations, uh, naval recruits and reservists, and, as well as Marines, would train in that building. Then in about 2000, the U.S. government transferred it to the city, and since 2012, it's been the Museum of History and Industry. Yeah, and there's also a couple other things. To, uh, just a beautiful park. Oh, it's a the, great um, park. Uh, you know, it just keeps like it'll keep getting better and better. Uh, they keep making nice little additions to it and improvements. There's a Center for Wooden Boats right there, right? The Center for Wooden Boats is amazing because you can actually get on the water and in historic wooden craft, and you can learn how to sail. Um, and then there are historic vessels at Lake Union Park. Uh, historic uh, uh, ferry boats and the very first Seattle fire boat and uh, even a floating lighthouse. Uh, It's just a wonderful combination of of activities and things to enjoy, a great way to spend an afternoon or a morning with your family. And, of course, the museum is in the center of all that. And it is, I really do love that, that it is there. The building itself is historical. You're a historical museum and all those other parts. And Seattle's got such a rich maritime history. It's right on the lake there. It's it's beautiful. I'm glad that you guys are there. It's perfect, I think, for a a Seattle institution. And so the Mohai itself, um, memorable. Members supported, right? You're a nonprofit, uh, right? You're not a part of the city budget. That's right. right. We're a private organization, so we are uh, we exist to serve the community, but we're a private organization. We have thousands of members and uh, hundreds of thousands of visitors, so it's really a community museum. And uh, we've been in, you know, as you say, we've been around for over a hundred years, but brand new in our new facility. And we're still, we're still finding that people are discovering us for the first time, and that's very exciting. Well, it is neat, especially now that you are like. 
people got to drive by there. <laughs> and when you bring out-of-towners into Seattle, it's perfect to say, oh, you know what we should do? Let's bring you here. I'll show you a little bit more about Seattle that I'm still learning about. And the Museum of History and Industry is a great way to do that, right? I mean... Well, it's kind of like a first stop. If you, either if you're a newcomer to Seattle, and we know we have lots of newcomers in our region, which we are delighted to welcome. Uh, so if you want to discover where you've landed, or if you have out-of-town visitors who want to know more about where you live, Mohai is a great place to start your, your discovery. Um, we have everything about this region from the days of Native American uh, culture all the way through American settlement up to actually the present day. We even, Gary, have a focus on innovation, history that's being made right now in our community. That's on display as well. Well, well I mentioned Amazon, Jeff Bezos. Um, you have a, what's that one big room called, the Jeff Bezos Center of Innovation or something well, like that? Well, we call it the Bezos Center for Innovation. Yeah, and I got it's, it right for you the got most it, part. Okay. You got it very close to being right. <laughs> so I'll give, you, I'll give you an A-plus on that. Um, it's a celebration and really an examination of how did we become such an innovative region. And it's not just Amazon in recent history. It goes all the way back even before Boeing. I mean, you go back to the 19th century and some of the amazing, innovative things that happened here. And here's another thought that some people don't often realize is our Native American community, historically, for thousands of years, was an innovative culture that really took amazing advantage of the natural resources and really uh, devised ways of living and uh, creating uh, life and creating an economy here in this region using some very innovative techniques. So innovation is part of our DNA in the Northwest, and the Bezos Center for Innovation is a chance to really explore that and celebrate it. Yeah, that and that's so cool that you mentioned that. And there are just hundreds and I'm going to say probably thousands, maybe millions of artifacts you've kind of got, <laughs> not always on display, but to change and move out. And, and one of them I want to talk about now that will get a little more specific after we've talked generally here. Um, if I say 100 years ago, on the 11th hour of the 11th day, the 11th month in 1918, the guns fell silent, and that brought World War I to an end. And uh, it's Veterans Day now, but originally then it was called Armistice Day because that was the armistice of World War I, the 11th hour, the 11th day, the 11th month, November 11th. And there's an exhibit there now, It's and it's been there for a, a month or two now, actually, and it runs through February, right, called World War I America. This is like a real good look at what was going on 100 years ago, but what I kind of like about uh, exhibits like this, you guys sort of present them so that, hey, we're looking at ourselves almost in current day. I mean, things change, but they haven't changed in, in certain ways. That's what a great museum is, can tell us, right? Well, that's so true. The exhibit is called World War One America, and it's really a chance to look back a hundred years, but as you say, to really see how the changes from a century ago continue to impact us today. This was the first truly international global conflict, and America was in it as much as any other country, in some ways more so. And the important thing and the interesting thing is that Seattle was at the center of that. We were a home front city. We were building airplanes and turning them into weapons of war. We were building ships for wartime uses. Our timber uh, and forest products industries were geared up for the war effort. Even our foodstuffs were going over to Europe to feed the troops. We became a wartime center. And the changes that precipitated the growth in our economy, uh, the increasing role of women, uh, the recruitment of African-American workers to our community, this changed who we were in very fundamental ways. And so this exhibit at Mohai called World War I America, uh, which is on display right now, 
looks at the war not so much on what happened on the battlefield as much as what happened here on the home front. How did we change? And what we discover, Gary, is that the changes that happened then, they still affect us today. It was a really turbulent time. This is something, you know, people, I guess, study World War II quite a bit. It's one of the most written about topics of all time. Um, But World War I, I don't think you're right. Enough people know exactly what was going on. And you said it's not just focused on the battlefield, who was fighting and how, what battles were fought and who won this and what generals were in charge, but what the world was like. That's kind of what I, I want to hear more about. So what, what do we see on this exhibit at Mohai that, you know, that tells us about, it was a turbulent time, right? It was a very turbulent people time. People didn't really, I mean, I don't know, let me throw it out this way, mass communication, what we think of now well, back then it seemed like, wow, the world's really changed with the telegraph and the telephone, and people thought, we know what's going on in Europe. Yeah, and that was a huge change. You know, before World War I, every community was a little bit its own thing. Uh, countries certainly were isolated from each other. World War I really introduced a global economy because it's, it drew everybody into a global conflict. And here in the United States, our own country, our own economy and culture became very nationalized. Suddenly, people were being drafted to fight in a war. There wasn't a draft before this. At least there hadn't been one since the Civil War, if you can imagine. Yeah. And that so was just temporary. For, and that was just temporary. Yeah. Suddenly, people were being constri- conscripted to serve in the, in the military. Uh, uh, propaganda was, you know, a polite way of saying information. Um, uh, That would be a more polite way of saying it. But that was being nationalized. Suddenly we were all reading the same news reports and learning the same facts and Uh and hearing the same stories. Um, We were all being asked to make the same sacrifices. Um, How were we going to contribute to winning this very, very important war over in Europe? So European news, which you would seldom find in Seattle newspapers, was suddenly now on the front page. We cared what happened on the battlefields of Europe because our sons and actually our daughters serving in the nursing corps and so forth, they went to the front lines and they brought those stories and those experiences back. So Seattle entered the war as a fairly provincial city, a, a smaller or to mid-sized city, and it re- really became both an economic powerhouse, but also a community much more connected to international um, politics and international economy than it ever had been before. But um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, we didn't just jump into that war. It wasn't it a part of, wasn't part of that war let them solve their own problems. We are America. We just, I mean, that kind of rings to what we sometimes hear now. Uh, let's take care of America only and f- ignore the rest of the world. Was, wasn't that part of the, before we really got into it ourselves? Well, absolutely. Woodrow Wilson, who was the president during this period, was reelected president because he was the guy who kept us out of war. Kept that was his, that yep. was his campaign slogan. So we were essentially an isolationist nation. You know, Europe was the old ways, the old world. And it was the old wars that they were fighting. We didn't want to have anything to do with it. But shortly after Wilson was reelected, it became very clear to him and eventually to everybody in the country that this war had the potential of completely devastating Europe. And it would probably spread to other continents, including North America. In fact, interestingly, the Germans tried to enlist Mexico in a plot to invade the United States on our own border. So the war seemed far away in 1914 when it first started in Europe. 
But by 1917, when America entered, it was very clear that this was going to be a global conflict. And that's kind of the change you're talking about in the way the world kind of, well, I guess shrank really uh, metaphorically, that we learn more and more about the rest of the world through over those first couple of years of the war. Boy, that's so true. And it's such a good way of saying it. it shrank. The world got smaller. And after the war, an example of how the impact of getting smaller, when some of those troops developed influenza in Europe. They brought it back to the United States. Within a few months, that famous flu spread all around the world because of the mobility of troops and transportation. Suddenly, a cold in Europe ended up being a uh, pneumonia in the United States, if you will, because the world had gotten that smaller. What it really was about was the movement of troops, the movement of goods, uh, the, the globalization of the international economy had real impacts on ev- on people's everyday life. Wow, the world really did change, Leonard. You're talking about <laughs> people moving. You're right. I mean, so vaccines and everything. So this was the Spanish flu epidemic, and it really was a worldwide epidemic. And it was just as you as the war ended and people dispersed back around the world. And, wow. and they took with them this illness. It was, it was interesting. It was called the Spanish flu. It had nothing to do with Spain, yeah, actually. But that, that's what it was called, but right? It was called that, that because Spain was relatively neutral in World War I, and they did not have censorship of their media. So people were getting sick in Spain, as they were throughout Europe and in North America. But all the newspapers were controlled because no one wanted to have that kind of news when you're trying to win a war. Spain didn't care. They published it. So suddenly everybody thought the flu actually came from Spain. We don't really know how it started. We think it was a a virus passed by animals, possibly in Asia. Um, But it was the movement of troops around Europe and across the ocean to the United States that really caused it to spread globally. And as you probably know, millions upon millions of people died around the world and thousands of people died right here in Washington state as a result of the flu. In fact, more people died in Washington from the flu, including returning soldiers, than actually died in the combat of World War I. Well, that's a nice little factoid that I did not know. Um, so the, the influenza epidemic, that's part of the exhibit? I mean, you yes, touch we, on that as well? We talk about the influenza epidemic. We talk about the changing role of women. There were so many social and demographic changes that World War I precipitated. You know, sometimes going to war... It puts you on a different footing, um, but it really causes you as a culture to think about what are our roles, what, who do we need to enlist to actually win victory. And it became very clear that half the population, women, were not going to be excluded. So many women um, volunteered both at home in organizations like the Red Cross mm-hmm. and the YWCA mm-hmm. and the Salvation Army that were providing critical social services at a time when government did not really do that at all. Uh, but women also served on the battlefields. They drove, drove ambulances. Really? They, uh, they um, served uh, troops that were injured and wounded, mostly in nursing corps, but they were uh, every much as much in the front line as the men were. And so many of those people who served on the front lines in World War I, including those who came from right here in King County, it was such a violent and destructive war to the people fighting it because the mechanization of weaponry, the industrialization of weaponry, suddenly allowed people to engage in war in a very destructive way. The concussive power of bombs created traumatic brain injury that we're more familiar with now really wasn't a feature of war very much until World War I. 
um, of course, the use of tanks was a World War I invention, if you will. The use of aircraft in war was a World War I invention. Submarine warfare exploded during World War I. So we were finding new ways of engaging in war including chemical warfare. It wasn't prohibited in World War I. In fact, it was seen as a scientific advance. So the troops often found themselves essentially being guinea pigs on the battlefield, not just to win the war or fight the cause, but to actually see what the consequences of chemical warfare well, would be. Like gas attacks. Were, yes, yeah. so gas masks were a regular feature of, of uh, guys' people uniform. People then at home, because <laughs> you talk about propaganda, that fear spread to home. People started buying gas masks. Maybe I'll need this at home if the things go bad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. there, there was a kind of a level of terror to the war that wasn't so prevalent in the wars of the 19th century. We're more familiar with that today because we've spent another century fighting wars that were very violent and, and very challenging in that way. But World War wow. I was the first war where really the, the combat conditions themselves were so uh, difficult and really so devastating. We are talking this morning with Leonard Garfield. He's the executive director of the Museum of History and Industry here in Seattle, MOHI. You can look it up online, and if you know how to figure that out, mohai.org, M-O-H-A-I, MOHI, Museum of History and Industry.org, or give them a call, 206-324-1126. Tickets, people can buy things uh, online, right, for the exhibit right. ahead you, of time. You, you can buy join online as a ahead member, of time, right? You can join as a member. We always welcome individuals and families to join us as members. And, of course, you can just drop by the museum. We're actually open every day of the year except Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, and we're open from 10 in the morning until 5 in the evening um, most days. So Now, speaking of being open every day, even on Veterans Day, and like I said, this is the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day, Veterans Day, and you guys, tell us what's going on this weekend, this coming weekend. Uh, you're going to start with something on Friday as well as Saturday and Sunday, or no, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Right, Saturday, Saturday Sunday, Sunday, and Monday. Monday. It's the a v- 10th, the 11th, and 12th coming up. That's right. It's a very important weekend, not just here in Seattle, but really globally, because this is the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, the, the so-called armistice, which did bring peace and, and end the war. Uh, as you mentioned, Gary, it's now in the United States called Veterans Day, so this is Veterans Day weekend. But on Saturday and Sunday and Monday, we will have free admission for veterans and for active duty military. Um, in addition to our regular free admission for everyone under 15 or always free at Mohai, I should point that out. And of course, um, discounts for seniors and students. Um, but we also have a couple special programs. On Saturday evening at the museum, we're going to have a panel discussion that looks at the impact of World War I on our geopolitics of today. You know, that was such a chaotic and uh, changing era in the early 20th century. Of course, we're experiencing that again today, and there are many parallels there. So we'll look at those in depth on Saturday evening. And give me the subject line of that again. So the sub- what would you say? Well, that's a, <laughs> the title is called New World Order. The Geopolitics of Disruption and Change. Wow. And that's a big that title. That does sound like today, but it's 100 but years ago's history as well. It is. What happened 100 years ago was that the world just scrambled. It realigned. It reorganized itself, much the way we are doing today. So we're going to take a look at some of the parallels. Uh, what does it mean to live in an era today where the Pacific Rim is in ascendancy? Um, What does it look like today where climate change is going to impact geopolitics? 
Um, there were changes like that happening 100 years ago as well, and we're going to talk about how does the world come to terms when everything gets thrown up into question and, and changes in the air. That's Saturday night, November 10th. And then Sunday, November 11th is that very important day you referenced, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. November 11th, 1918 was the armistice, so this November 11th is the centennial. We'll have a very special ceremony at Mohai, at the Museum of History and Industry, um, at 11 o'clock on Sunday, November 11th, this coming Sunday. The ceremony will actually begin at 10.30, but at 11, right at the stroke of the hour, we will be ringing bells as part of a national initiative called the Bells of Peace Initiative. And we will be joined by representatives of Germany and England and other countries that were deeply involved in World War I, not to re-argue the war, but rather to ring bells as a sign of unity and peace going forward. Because the armistice is actually a day that recognizes when the world came together and had peace at last. So um, come to the museum, come to Mohai this coming Sunday at 1030. Uh, the ceremony starts then, but the highlight will be the bell ringing at 11 o'clock on that very famous 11th hour that commemorates the peace of 100 years ago. And then on Monday, uh, a lot of the city and state uh, offices and people have that day off as the national holiday. You, you also, you're continuing the celebration that day. We are. We'll be open on Monday and again, free admission for veterans, free admission for active duty military, free for everybody 15, uh, under 15, I should say. And the World War I America exhibit that we've been talking about will be open all weekend long, uh, which uh, people I think will enjoy. And you know, Gary, if they go on the website, mohai.org, mohai.org, they'll discover a whole calendar of events for this upcoming weekend. There are going to be all kinds of interesting uh, activities for families. There are going to be some lectures during the day on Sunday, um, and then all kinds of great stuff on Saturday and Monday as well. So it should be a terrific weekend at Mohai. Yeah, it really should, uh, and special, and, and probably moving, I think, for, in a lot of different ways. Um, an exhibit like this, so is this one of these uh, you kind of get together with other big museums around the country and you didn't just build this yourself, did you? I mean, is it going to move or has it been elsewhere? That's a great question. This is a very important national traveling exhibit. A traveling, and, that's what I'm trying to right, say, a traveling exhibit. It was co-curated by Mohai and several other history museums around the country. Uh, it was pulled together in terms of the, uh, the shipping of the exhibit by the Minnesota State History Museum, a very fine museum in St. Paul. And it had its opening there. It then went for an East Coast venue at the Historical Society in Richmond, Virginia. We are now the West Coast um, uh, premiere for the exhibit. It will then, after us, go to the big history center in Texas. And that will be its uh, sort of um, southwestern stop. And then it will go on beyond there. But we're very lucky to be the West Coast premiere of this very important exhibit. Have you found, have you got a, I don't know, a favorite, I don't know, display? Is there an artifact or two that you say, oh, people got to come by and see this. I can't stop looking at it. Or, I don't oh, know. There, there's so, just a... oh, there's so many things. For example, remember the Lusitania, the ship that was sunk that oh, helped precipitate yeah. American entry into World War I? We have deck chairs from the Lusitania. So really? talk about talk about real history. That's uh, a fascinating get. I wouldn't have thought that was even around. That's cool. I know. Just amazing. Um, uh, we mentioned that the draft started in World War I. Well, when they first had the draft, 
uh, they thought, gee, let's let's we'll pick a bunch of numbers out of a out of a bucket, but we don't have a bucket. So someone ran down to the general store in Washington D.C. and bought a big plastic bucket, which is where they drew the names from to see who would be drafted. And that bucket, believe it or not, still exists, and that's in the show. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, we have President Wilson's uh, top hat that he wore to the Versailles Treaty, the famous treaty where he. Uh, essentially tried to establish democratic principles for the whole world. Of course, the sad part of that story was he came back to the United States and he really was sort of, uh, you know, he, he wasn't really so much honored in his own country. Yeah, this was the League of Nations The League of idea, Nations, right? and we, uh, we, the United States government, the Senate, uh, rejected entry into the League of Nations, so Wilson was very disappointed. But uh, things associated with Wilson are in it. There's a lot of stories about um, uh, women who served in the nursing corps, African-Americans who enlisted and tried to really um, uh, reflect their patriotism, their willingness to fight for this country that had so mistreated them historically. Uh, they became very brave uh, members of the American military forces, uh, often decorated. Unfortunately, when they came back, uh, the racist, uh, really virulently racist uh, sentiment against black people heightened. So there's a lot about that story. We have lots to do with the uh, industrial expansion that happened here in the United States during the war. Um, in interesting information about the suffragette movement, the movement for the women's right to vote. Which yeah, women couldn't vote then. Yet they, they couldn't. contributed so much to changing societies like, I don't get to vote. And they said, <laughs> if we contribute to the war effort, President Wilson, will you support the amendment to allow women to vote? He said he would. And so the, in 1920, as the war essentially had ended, women did get the right to vote. And it was very much a reflection of the incredible role they played during World War I. So that's in the exhibit as well. That's awesome. Lots of oral histories, lots of early video. You know, motion picture cameras were relatively new, and so there's some really interesting video. Uh, we hear music from the, from the period. Oh, nice. It's a very fun, um, serious uh, compelling exhibit with lots to see. In fact, the one comment we get from visitors is, wow, there was a lot to see and a lot to learn in that exhibit. I'm going to come back to get more. Yeah. World War I America is currently at Mohai. Um, we're going to run out of time, Leonard. Before we do, I want to make sure we talk about some other things coming up. Um, you guys plan and plan ahead. You know, these things are big deals. So coming in the spring uh, in May, right? Uh, right. Seattle style. Well, now, some people would say that's a contradiction in terms. That <laughs> we hear that a lot. But at, at the Museum of History and Industry, we have a collection of literally thousands upon thousands of historic garments and costumes and clothing and jewelry that have been collected over many years that reflect the evolution of style in Seattle. So in the spring of 2019, next spring, we will open an exhibit called, called Seattle Style, fashion function, because we recognize it has both elements of that. Uh -huh. And that show will open on May 4th and run through October of next year. It's really going to be spectacular. You're going to see some amazing uh, uh, garments from uh, beautiful uh, uh, couture gowns to very practical stuff developed by Eddie Bauer. So it's just kind of everything that comes out of our area that reflects who we are as Seattleites, which, let's face it, it's different than almost anywhere else in the country. Well, and we take pride in that. And we being do. Being different is kind of a cool part of being a Northwestern. And you're going to see that. There's a lot of idiosyncrasy in how, we, uh, in how we are and how we act and how we dress. And that's what Seattle Style is about. Well, that'll be fun. That'll be next spring in, the, in May of 2019. That's right. Hey, okay, so we are uh, kind of out of time. Did we leave anything out or should we say again? So the Armistice Day Centennial Commemoration, is that a way to say it? This coming weekend, 
November 10th, 11th, and 12th, right? That's right. And the, and the ceremony itself will start at 1030 on Sunday, November 11th at Mohai on Lake Union Park. And we will be ringing bells, um, honoring the those who served in the war and who gave their lives for a lasting peace. Yeah, that is going to be terrific. And just a lot of great things people can see that whole weekend. But that really sounds like a moving uh, a part of it. Thank you so much, Leonard, for being here. We have been talking today with Leonard Garfield, the executive director at the Museum of History and Industry, Mohai. Leonard, thanks for coming in today and sharing with us one of Seattle's treasures. Uh, again, online, folks, mohai.org. Uh, for all your Museum of History and Industry uh, answers, right? That's absolutely right. Thank you, Gary. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.